When we think about the climate crisis, it's easier to believe that the effects of climate change are years away, impacting future generations. However, it's been reported at the start of 2023 that Greenland temperatures are the hottest on record in over 1,000 years. Climate change is accelerating volatility and escalating the risk of extremes, creating massive challenges for people, governments, and businesses around the world. Adaptation is a necessity and the most important transformation of our time. So what if there was a way to climate-proof the economy while aiming for zero loss of lives, livelihoods, and nature? Well, this is what the team at Climate AI are on a mission to achieve. Their AI solution in agriculture and food, finance, commodities, water risk management, and climate risk management is the world's first enterprise climate planning platform that offers risk intelligence in these main areas of concern that affect people, enterprises, and governments. Today, I speak with Himanshu Gupta, the co-founder and CEO of Climate AI, to learn how his company is offering valuable insights so people in those industries can climate-proof their future. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Himanshu, thank you so much for joining us on the Sustainability Champions podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me here, Daniel. Of course. Looking and forward um, to it. Likewise. Yeah, very much. Uh, the way I like to typically start these conversations is really just big picture to set the stage uh, for what we're going to be talking about. So what is the elevator pitch for climate AI? Sure. So climate AI is the world's first AI-based adaptation, climate adaptation platform for the world. So we use AI to predict risk of heat waves, wildfires, droughts, hurricanes uh, at any location, and then convert that into actionable metrics uh, for businesses to take action on. We've been working quite a bit with the businesses over the last uh, two years. This company started right out of Stanford University through a technology breakthrough that we had there, where which allowed us to forecast this risk cheaper, faster, and better than supercomputers out there. Cool. Uh, and, and then after that, we, we have deployed that platform in food and agriculture supply chains for obvious reasons, because these are, you know, what we eat and how mm -hmm. we eat, is, eat that is very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So we deployed that. Now, if you open the, uh, your refrigerator in, in, the, in the United States, most of the brands that you see there all the way from Driscoll's or Ocean Spray or Wonderful, if you had like Wonderful Juice, uh, we're all, we, we are working with all of them. Either we are working with them or uh, they are in our pipeline. And over the last year or so, uh, after the war uh, and, and, and the compounded impacts of climate change, we have started partnering with the governments as well on the food security and water security agenda. Amazing. And there's so many different directions we can go. Um, it's hard to know where to start because this is such a big and important topic. So I, I suppose we, we can start sticking with the bigger picture thinking. What it sounds like to me in many ways is that the software that you're providing, um, so j just to recap for my own understanding, you're, you're in essence predicting 
the risks associated with climate change so that companies can be companies and governments, I suppose, can be prepared for the changes. So this to me sounds like um, climate adaptation, climate change adaptation, uh, where we are basically climate change is happening and things are changing and, and it's not like it was 20 or 50 years ago in terms of seasons, even I'm seeing it. Uh, like you start to see trees sprouting tiny little leaves in January and we're still in the middle of winter. You know, why are these trees anyway? Um, and so, so just to hear it from you, what exactly is climate adaptation and why is climate ad adaptation so important? Climate change adaptation. Sure. I mean. Yeah. So think of, I mean, as you rightly pointed out, that climate is happening, right? Whether we are able to limit the emissions or global warming to 1.5 degrees or it goes to 4 degrees. Even at 1.5 degrees, we are seeing the impacts of climate change we are seeing, right? Um, and let's, I can I can talk to you like any, if you look at any crop that you eat or any food that you eat, I have a bunch of cherries uh, in my hand, right? Uh, or I also have tea in my hand. Mm -hmm. Um, tea is, is I'm, I'm having my tea, herbal tea. And when you talk about these cherries, the color, the quality and the availability and the price, all four of these factors, uh, tell you the story of, of, uh, an extreme weather event, the, uh, the, these cherries would have gone through where, where, wherever they're coming from. Similarly about tea, right? The aroma of the tea, the acidity, acidic content in tea, again, tells you a story of, of, uh, the the extreme weather events uh, they've been through. Now, what we are seeing because of climate change, so extreme extreme weather events have always happened, right, in the history. But because of climate change, what we are seeing is these events are becoming more frequent and these events are becoming more intense, depending upon where you are. And as a result, if you look at our water systems, our energy systems, our food systems, uh, as well as our economic systems, broader economic systems, they have not been able to adapt as fast as they should have because you know the, these changes have happened very fast over the last uh, two or three decades. Just to give you a sense, uh, since early 1850s, if you look at the overall cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, 90% of those emissions, cumulative emissions, have come in the last 30 years, hmm. right? So from 1850, that's 170 years. Out of those 170 years, the last 30 years have produced 90% of the emissions. But the pace of change is something which I think uh, not just, uh, you know, I, I talked about water systems, food systems, and energy systems include and humans as well as animals. We call it biodiversity. Mm -hmm. They're not used to that pace of a change. And in that case, uh, adaptation means like what kind of mechanisms, what kind of actions, um, what kind of uh, research would allow these systems to adapt to to the the new normal, as we call it, the new normal of weather or extreme weather over the next 10 years, 20 years, or 100 years down the line. And so that basically that last sentence you said about adapting to this new normal, is that in essence when you're working with those well-known brands that you mentioned and with governments in terms of food and water security, is that in essence how, what you're helping them do with your software is showing them what that new normal looks like and in essence, preparing them for that. Like with the cherries, I mean, one example, and I'll let you answer, but uh, I'm just kind of trying to figure it out myself. So 
with the cherries, it's when do we start planting cherry trees? Uh, when do we expect the harvest to be? Because that's going to affect supply chain and scheduling and so on. Absolutely. So there are always the answers line in these three points. What, when, and where. So if you look, if you apply that to food systems or cherries, like where can we grow cherries in the future because of climate change? Um, what kind of cherry varietals should should we be growing? Uh, you you know should we be growing uh, early maturing varietals, late maturing varietals, or what have you? Or and then how they have to be grown, right? When should when should they be planted? Uh, how much fertilizer should should we be using? How much water would they require? And so on and so forth. So these are these three questions. Now I can apply these three questions to water systems as well. Uh, so if you look at, uh, you know, as we know, climate is introducing a lot more variability in, in rainfall that is causing, uh, and, and, and because of population growth and increase in demand, the supply has not been able to catch up with the demand. Um, and as a result, we are seeing water issues of water availability, access, quality, um, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, the adaptation question becomes like, first, you measure what is the risk, as you talked about, Daniel, like how, what is the risk to your water system? Uh, when is it that the system will be under the new normal? And this is where our AI scientists have done a really good job of like figuring out when. Because if you look at the issue of climate change, typically people think, tend to think of that as a long-term phenomenon. Then, you know, like 30, 40, 50 years down the line, you might have seen those videos where people are talking about their grandkids. Hey, you know what? I want to leave, uh, you know, uh, 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 weather or your know, climate or earth, which is habitable for my grandkids. Forget your grandkids. It's your survival is at stake, right? Um, so, so when you think about like even what water systems, uh, our team has been able to figure out when is it that these water systems um, will be approaching a new normal, which is like at at that point, your your demand if you keep on withdrawing more water without uh, you know without recharging those water systems, uh, either due to natural recharge like your rainfall and whatnot or artificial recharges. Uh, the aquifers or the wells, as we call it in, in like uh, plain language, uh, they will reach a point of no return where they never be able to fully recharge themselves, right? So the, this is a question of when and then how, like how do you adapt your water systems to the new normal of climate change? What kind of technologies would allow you to adapt to those uh, systems? And, and, and then where, like, okay, if, you know, it's if uh, Northern Mexico is going to have a lot more incidences of drought, intense droughts, then where else can we shift our water systems to southern Mexico as an example and, and have uh, transportation infrastructure from southern Mexico to northern Mexico? Uh, to, wow. So that's, that's so these are three questions. Uh, uh, what, when, and where, and you can apply that to any supply chain uh, or any or, or, a, or a biodiversity system or an energy system, and, and that's what we help companies answer. I mean, these are huge questions and the solutions, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, like moving uh, water supply from uh, to Mexico and building um, building infrastructure around that, these are you know multi billion dollar projects. So th th these are the kind of things that you can't take this sort of these kind of questions lightly. You know, it's um, huge ramifications and and really big um, uh, long term strategies and projects. Um, just a devil's, a devil's advocate question, uh, because I've heard that from 
modeling is modeling is is a very important tool and you know it's it's crucial to find ways to um to predict but of course we can't predict the future we do our best to to try to predict the future using the information we have available but ultimately it's impossible to actually predict the future and so for for i mean what what would you say to if i were yeah. to say well you know, you can't predict the future and yeah, AI is great, but you know, ultimately you're just using <laughs> today's data to try to figure out something that's happening um, in, in months or years. Yeah. So first of all, I agree with the devil here that uh, it's, it's very impossible to predict these. Right. Right. Um, and, but as they say, you know, in our AI community, it, it goes, it goes like this. Models are always wrong, but they are useful. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what that means is, let's, let's take an example of, forget climate change, let's take an example of stock markets. When you're investing in any stock like Tesla and, and uh, Microsoft or what have you, the way you are, like you, you look at uh, ratings given, given to you by buy or sell ratings given to you by Robinhood, like these brokerage platforms or by analysts from Goldman Sachs or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And these ratings are based on the future cash flow projection coming, projections coming from, um, from these stocks. Over the next 10 years, 20 years, they have their own estimates of the growth rates of these stocks uh, discounted by you know, the inflation and whatnot. And, and then you arrive at like a buy sell rating and they give you like uh, a limit of like, oh, okay, we think Tesla stock is, uh, can go up to, to uh, you know, 3X or 2X current amount in the next two years. Mm -hmm. And all of us, you know, this is, I'm not saying this is the only, that is the only way why we invest stocks, but we take that into consideration and make our investment decisions based on that, right? Knowing very well that it's so hard to predict stock markets. And history has, has been, uh, it has been right with so many catastrophic events in stock markets where everyone's predictions have gone wrong and, and retail investors have lost so much of money, right? Now, the reason I'm saying that is it's, it applies the same way in, in climate uh, predictions as well. So if you look at, for example, we work quite a bit with the supply chain managers, as an example. They are looking at uh, for the next season or for the next 10 years and 20 years, right? Uh, and they're already using historical averages. So they're making bets on that. Okay, so... What if, uh, you know, for example, what is the probability of a pest attack on my corn fields for the next three months and six months? And should I buy a pesticide in advance or not? Because otherwise, uh, if, if I'm late, the, the price of pesticides will go up by 2x and 3x. Should I buy it in advance or not? Right? So there is already some built of like some, uh, some uh, inherent risk uh, uh, actions that a lot of us take. What we are doing is like, we are making it more calculated, mm -hmm. right? And we are making it more useful. So, hey, first of all, uh, past is not the predictor of the future. You talked about Daniel. And that's, that's, that's the first uh, uh, hypothesis that we have. Second is we use not just the past data, we use the future climate data, uh, as well as the current state of Earth's oceans, right? So we call oceans as the memory of Earth's climate. Everyone has heard about El Nino and La Nina, right? Uh, these are like two, uh, you know, I won't go too much into the technical depths here, but these are like two ocean currents, very well known by, uh, you know, our South American friends, which basically dictate weather globally. When you, when you they say like, hey, where you have La Nina, uh, then Australia is going to see a lot more of floods. 
California is going to see a lot more of drought. But then these are indicative. No one can show for, uh, can say for sure, right? What we say is like, what is happening, what we have discovered is what is happening in oceans today will drive to an extent what might happen at a particular location uh, two weeks, six months, or even sometimes one to 10 years down the line. So by using that indicator, uh, oceans, and then we can, you can get a, a bit more reliable into your forecast. And this bit more reliable, you know, makes a lot of differences to how supply chain planners are thinking about demand supply planning under the new climate volatility, right? So think of that as like, we are providing buy-sell ratings. Now those are, you know, to, to a lot of these supply chain planners, we might be wrong, right? But if you trust us and you act on this forecast for the next, you know, at least 10 to 15 times, statistically, you'll end up uh, reducing that risk or, or reducing losses or making more money or, or like uh, saving lives uh, on an average. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, anything to do with the future is is a gamble or a bet. Um, and and I suppose what what you're saying is that with the information that climate AI provides, you're allowing people to have just a a bit extra data. And it, it sounds like it's actually a lot of data. And I want to ask about that in a moment. But um, in terms of how they make those decisions um, and how how they place their how people place their bets, because yeah, like you said, I mean, you know, do you buy more pesticide now or in the future? It, who knows, really? But at the same time, here are the here's a bunch of information. I imagine it's distilled to something that's easy to interpret. And now use this information to make your decision. And and if you, whichever way you go, at least you, you'll have a better understanding of why you're choosing to do that. Absolutely. And just on the point of, of that data. So, I mean, you're talking about ocean currents. We're talking, there's just so many different factors that go into climate change. And, you know, if I'm in the supply chain or trying to answer the question of, do I buy pesticides now or should I just wait? Um, that's the factors associated with the answer to that are huge. I mean, they're global, um, they're, they're, it's microclimate, it's macroclimate questions. So how much information does climate AI actually take into account in order to make these kind of suggested predictions or provide the information that uh, the consumer is reading through? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So it depends on the location and the type of crop or type of commodity as an example. And some locations are a lot more predictable and some versus the others. So if you look at the tropical bed, like if you are predicting something for Brazil or India or uh, other tropical regions, it's it's you can do that with a high reliability in your forecast. Hmm. Then for let's say uh, temperate belt. So these are like, and then within within tropical belt, you'll have other you know other indicators which will ma matter a lot more for India versus indicators which will matter for a lot more for Brazil forecast of Brazil as an example. So so what this what we models do is we basically uh, capture a lot of like satellite sensor data, weather sensor data. Uh, which is historical and as well as real time. Then we also capture a lot of like oceanic data. It could be sea surface temperatures, uh, sea salinity gradient. I mean, I don't want to go too much into the depth, but like the, the level of salt concentration at the top of the ocean versus the bottom of the ocean wow. uh, and, and, and pressure and so on and so forth. And let the machine learning model figure out, let's say for this location, what are the most important factors? Is it the sea surface temperature, the most important factor? Is it the, the the level of salt concentration in the sea, 
that is the most important factor. And once that is once the model identifies that, then you can start tracking these factors and producing the forecast uh, for those locations. So yes, yeah, so to your point, there's it's a it's a big data problem as we call it. So climate is a big data problem as well as a lack of data problem, right? But then you think about uh, uh, this is big data. There's so much data out there. How do you make sense out of that data? But then if you look at extreme weather events, look at hurricanes as an example. Uh, on hurricanes uh, springing up on the southeastern board of the U.S. There are three or four hurricanes coming up uh, every year on an average, thankful, not more than that. And, and we have started measuring, taking these records uh, over the last 60, 70 years only. Because there's not enough data for the models to figure out, right, and, 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 you, and, and just predict future hurricane risk analyzing historical hurricanes. And that's why it becomes a lack of data problem. So climate prediction is both big data as well as the lack of data problem. And, and we have uh, these AI models which work towards you know, uh, making sense out of big data, but also in many cases generating synthetic data with, with the lack of data problem. Well, I suppose that's where machine learning comes in is every time in the, in the example of the hurricanes, every time there's a new hurricane that comes through, it learns, you know, the data, all of the data that comes out of that and adjusts and corrects the model and keeps shifting it towards more, a more and more accurate prediction. Absolutely. So one, one thing that, that you talk about a lot is water. And we, you've already mentioned this at the, at the very beginning and we haven't touched on it yet. Um, but in many ways, water is way more important than food and agriculture, uh, because without water, we don't have food. We don't have agriculture. Um, and there are workarounds for, for, for the question of food. I mean, we can do greenhouses. There's a lot happening in indoor growing. And, and you know, I, I feel like the food question is a technology question, something we can, we can figure out. But water is, my understanding is, and it's very basic, it's much more complicated or much more, much more challenging to sort of just make water um, yeah. as such. And we are seeing already some changes in terms of where people are living based on water. Uh, and so this is a, this is a really, really big question. And so from what you're seeing, I mean, what is the situation currently with water? You know, I look, the, I'll start with the situation, um, but I don't want to create too much of a doom atmosphere for your audience here. And thank you. And I'll I'll end with like some of the optimistic, uh, and what makes me feel optimistic about uh, there is change coming uh, on the positive side as well, right? So you started talking about uh, water is is a fundamental component of uh, how we grow food, right? And life in general. But right? I would say like and life in general. But I would say like uh, what we wear um, mm, as well, yeah, of course. and then. To a point of like we are talking to each other uh, on on Zoom and and internet for for that matter and data centers like so we are talking at this bandwidth at this high speed internet uh, it's because there are data centers uh, somewhere uh, around the world which are running on water as a coolant mm-hmm. and you would be surprised to know Daniel that almost one third of the data centers in the U.S. are withdrawing water from from reservoirs which are under medium to high water stress due to climate change 
Hmm. Right. So, so that's, that's internet. And we'll also talk about your phones. We had, uh, you know, Fox phone manufactures uh, most of its phones in China. Right. And last, last summer we had a situation where there was no water left in hydropower dams because that uh, Chengdu province in China, um, the, the majority supplier of electricity in the province is hydropower plants. But because of drought, there was no power plant, you know, there was no electricity available and, and, and the, the levels in reservoirs and those dams uh, became very critical to a point that the government had to shut it down. So that happened when, so this was slowly brewing up and at the same time you had, uh, uh, at the same time you had a heat wave in China where the air conditioning demand goes up because of that in summer. So you have air conditioning demand going up because you want to switch to, uh, you know, more intense air conditioning. And then you had no supply available. As a result, there was a blackout. So for a week, uh, many of these chip designing com manufacturing companies like Intel and 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 uh, TSMC, which is Taiwanese Semiconductor, uh, and and whatnot, they had to shut down their factories for a week. Mm. So as as a consumer, the impact you see is, of course, you're getting delayed shipment of your phone, but also the price of your phone goes up, the price of the of the car that you buy goes up. Uh, for that matter. So these are like, people People talk about, hey, climate is not, or water is not my backyard problem. No, it is. It is. Uh, if you look at how you live, what you eat, what you consume, it's, it's very much uh, in your backyard problem. Yeah, I suppose and, it's not It's not a direct backyard problem. It's not like you look out your window and say, I don't see any problem here, but it's the, well, yeah, it's the chain reaction. It's a chain reaction. I mean, I mean, you talked about the food. I mean, you see the price of uh, groceries going up, especially in California. Or like you're going, you are going to buy strawberries, and suddenly you see like there are very few strawberries which are red, um, and uh, you know, red uh, big strawberry which are so used to uh, having, but there are very few of them available. At the same time, they are very pricey. Blame drought, right? Uh, well, for that matter. But then that's that's the business component of it. What we're also seeing. Uh, the humanitarian crisis around water right. at never seen before levels. And I'll give you an example of, uh, so many of my colleagues of Climate AI alone, many of my colleagues, they work in Mexico. They are from Mexico. They they are uh, they are very passionate, very smart uh, individuals, engineers and data scientists. Uh, I went to Mexico six months ago and uh, we have an office in Caretaro, which is, one and a half hours drive north of Mexico City. And many of uh, my colleagues came to me and told me like, Himanshu, thank you so much for inviting us to this hotel. Now we can take a shower. Hmm. We, have not, we have not taken a shower for the last three days. And many of them were, so a lot of these colleagues, they are living in Monterrey, which is one of the richest cities in Mexico City, in Mexico. And the city had run out of water altogether. Right, so you can't even you couldn't even find bottled water in Walmart's. So it's not the it wasn't even the question of money. Even if you had money, you can't do anything about it. The city had run out of water altogether. It was ground zero situation. And 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 that's why and and that's when I realized like it's 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 like going back in time. This is twenty five years ago. I was growing up in a very small town in the north of India, and we were also dependent on. Uh, the whims of nature uh, due to rainfall. And every year uh, during monsoons, if uh, there was any delay in monsoon rainfall during summers, the taps will dry out. 
right? And I remember like walking for almost uh, one one mile or one and a half mile with my mom and all three of our siblings to fetch water from a nearby river, mm. right? I mean, it was, of course, clearly, we were kids. So it, it was mostly like fun for us to go out uh, as a picnic. I'm sure it wasn't a picnic for my mother, right? Yeah, and uh, taking taking our four kids along and bringing water along. And when, when, when my colleagues told me the same thing, it's been 25 years. It's like going back in time. And this is where we are. So not much progress has happened on water. And, and probably because we don't give water the same important level of importance as we give to other um, things in our life. So we take water for granted. Yeah. And we can't take water for granted. I mean, you, you won't survive very long without water. Uh, food, you can you can live for a while without food, but water is, yeah, it's, it's pretty immediate. Um, and so, I mean... You, you mentioned at the beginning before you answer this question that you have some optimism about it. And at Sustainability Champions, we're always looking for, for a little bit of an optimistic take because there's enough doom and gloom as it is. So what is the optimistic angle that, that you see uh, considering, you know, these stories that you're, 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 you're sharing? Yeah. So, you know, some of the best stories of optimism always come from the most uh, surprising places, right? And you would tend to think that emerging economies and uh, the so-called third world countries, uh, well, they are the most vulnerable to water and, and climate crisis, but they're also uh, harbingers of one of the most innovative solutions mm-hmm. um, to climate crisis. Let's take example of uh, Cape Town in South Africa. In 2017, the city was three months away from completely running out of water done and there was not there was not even uh, there was no uh, there's not even a proper avail- like there was no projections for like even drinking water being available three months down the line then government st- sprung into action supported by supported by the youth and there was a big media campaign around that uh, you know social media especially like in so i mean the the gen z's and, and and the millennials became very active on social media urging each other to conserve water um then that that was one. Second was the government uh, put in like eighty to ninety million dollars of uh, funding into desalination plants. Uh, that was second. And third is uh, there was increased taxes and prices, uh, and and price was put on water, right? Because right now water, water is treated as a free commodity, and that's why you will see like uh, you know all of us washing our cars uh, for like an hour using water, like being in the shower for an hour or so, right? Um, and so once the once water is treated as a price commodity, then become people automatically become a lot more, a uh, lot more thoughtful about how much water to use and where to use it. Right. So, within within a year, uh, not only the city was able to avoid that ground zero situation uh, altogether, and now the city is actually a good case study for other cities to follow as well. Mm. Uh, for that matter, and we have another similar example of. Uh, <clears throat> There's a city uh, in uh, Namibia. I'm blanking on its name. They have been using, they've been treating the sewage water and converting that into drinkable water uh, for that city for the last 50 years. Oh, 50 wow. years has been going on. <laughs> right? And then you can say like, hey, why are we not like uh, putting financing and, and, and resources and, and capital, both labor capital and you know, both human capital and financial capital behind that and replicating that across the world. I don't know what the answer is, 
but there are uh, these pockets of optimism around the world which mm-hmm. we have seen yeah i think um I, I never knew that about the namibian city that sounds incredible and certainly worth in, worth investigating and looking into um interesting about the interesting thing i find about water is that so much of it is used in industrial or agricultural purposes um and i mean i'm from california and i'm Himanshu, maybe you've seen the same if you drive, you know, from the Bay Area down to Los Angeles, for instance, it doesn't matter if it's the 101 or the five, you end up just seeing at like 1pm, it's, you know, 30 degrees Celsius or whatever, 85 degrees Fahrenheit outside, 1pm, and they're just spraying the crops um, completely just letting, it's the spray kind, you know, the thing and the water is yeah. flying in all directions who knows how much of it and 30 degrees or whatever 85 degrees fahrenheit that's um that's relatively cool sometimes it's a lot hotter than that and who knows how much of that water is actually making it to the ground um and, and actually getting into the plants versus how much of it's being evaporated before it even makes it there um and i think this is to the point about water's being treated as a free resource because imagine if all of these farmers who are doing that used drip irrigation instead and watered at night when it was cool, you know, the, the water savings would be massive. And I think that would make a huge impact on the amount of water that's being saved and, and not being pulled from all these reservoirs and from the Colorado river or wherever it's coming from. Um, yeah. I, I think to me, this is such a critical, a critical point for water security, at least in, in, you know, Western um, the Western US, um, certainly in California. Is that something that your that climate AI could help advise, or is that a little bit different from the work that you're focusing on? Oh, absolutely. We are already working on that. So just take Amazing. a step back. I think, as you rightly put it, uh, two thirds of the global water consumption goes for producing ingredients for the corporate supply chains. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll just to give an example the annual water consumption of a country like Bhutan, right, which is a you know, small country uh, in the Himalayas, north of India, mm-hmm. is 94 billion liters annual consumption. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, my apologies. The, the annual consumption of uh, Bhutan, uh, the small country north of India, I mean, uh, is it's close to 390 billion liters. The annual consumption of AB and BEV of water for AB and BEV, you know, the beer that we drink mm-hmm. is close to 100 billion liters. Mm. Right. So if, if you were to track water consumption of all these corporates, you could place them even further higher up, further and higher up than a lot of countries in the world. Mm-hmm. They're acting as their own countries. Now, that doesn't mean now I'm not saying AB and, BEV, AB and BEV is doing a lot of great work on water conservation, but just to make a point as to uh, corporate supply chains, they can end up consuming a lot of water. And this is where I sort of, you, you talked about farmers. And I think my sense is farmers are, you know, the, the most uh, uh, enterprising people I've ever talked to, mm-hmm. right? They take a lot of risk. Uh, and, but then I, it's also, I think it's unfair. And, and yes, of course, uh, uh, they are also one of the biggest consumers of water in California. But uh, it's always good to see like who they are producing for. Right. When you're doing a water uh, footprint of any supply chain, let's say almonds uh, for that matter, and almonds goes into producing almond oil or or almond milk, uh, which we all drink and so on and so forth, it's always good to associate like, why should the entire blame goes on, should go on farmers? 
uh, at this point? Why should not should it not be counted into the water footprint of the processors they are selling to, mm-hmm. or the buyers they are selling to? Right. Mm-hmm. If you look at and 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 I'm sort of, uh, sorry for like diverting in a different direction here. The reason I say that is I feel feel for the farmers is they are the only players in that food and agriculture supply chain, right? Who are least diversified. Come to think of it, let's say uh, a processor is is buying from so many farmers globally, Nestle, uh, AB and Bev, or you name any, any brand that you name, Unilever. They're buying from so many farmers globally, but a farmer is only selling to one buyer, mm-hmm. right? And then if you look at food and agriculture supply chain, that's the only supply chain where farmers don't have that much, or the producers don't have a pricing power. If you look at oil, oil and gas, the countries which are, or the producers of oil, like ExxonMobil and whatnot, even the countries that produce are the majority producers of oil, like OPEC countries, they control the price of oil. But in case with farmers, they have absolutely no control on on the price of the crops. They are price takers. So that's why I think it's it's yes. I mean, farmers. We, we to your point. So we work with the corporate supply chains uh, on helping them prioritize and helping them advise to the farmer. Like we we don't want to be working with each and every farmer. Uh, it's, it's it's very unscalable way of doing things. But let's say we work with uh, a big corporate. Let's say a Driscolls who is working with tens of thousands of farmers. Uh, and it becomes a lot more scalable or impactful way of doing things. And they can advise their farmers as to like, hey, hey, how do you, which, uh, how do you uh, effectively conserve water? How do you increase efficiency of your crop operations and 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 so on and so forth? Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you. I, I think farmers are the backbone of every economy because ultimately, um, without farmers, we well very basically we wouldn't be able to eat and then we'd be busy either farming our own food uh, or hunting and gathering and yeah well without farmers we wouldn't have anything we have today and i think it's really important that we always remember how important farmers are for our lifestyle um and and i think you bring up a really important point it's we can't just say farmers what are you doing um you know uh, i think ultimately these large corporates as you're saying they're the ones who have really the capital to invest and and they have the opportunity to encourage their supply chain to make changes and if they're able to fund it somehow uh or um or sponsor it or i, I don't know what um i think that just makes it better for everyone Switching topics a bit, because um, I'm very curious to know, you, you mentioned that the software came from Stanford, um, which uh, is is its origination story. But was there a moment specifically when you realized that this was the work that you wanted to do and and where you wanted to put all of your energy and time into? Absolutely. So I think that moment came a lot before I, um, I came to Stanford. Uh, so I used to work in the government of India. And uh, uh, with uh, the former in, in, in the planning division of prime minister's office. Hmm. And if you look at India, right, the Western part of India, there's a lot of cotton farmers. It's, it's also the cotton belt, the Western belt of India. Okay. Every alternate year, we would see like whenever there's a drought, many cotton farmers will start committing suicide. Because they, you know, they they lose, end up losing most of their crops. They would never be able to repay their loans to their lenders, and it's it's 
there was considered very shameful. So they'll end up committing suicides because of that. The tragedy. Yes, it was something that we were working on and, and the government of India was working on. But what I also noted was many of the exec executives from the fashion brands approaching us. And, you know, uh, I won't name a specific one, but let's say H&M, H&M, Levi's, Gap, and you name it, all these brands, they'll come to us and executives and they wanted to work with us uh, on a solution, an insurance or adaptation solution for these farmers. And that baffled me. So why are these executives worried about that? And it was for two reasons. One is India, Texas, and Brazil are the three major cotton producing hubs for the world, mm. right? And they were very worried that if more and more farmers commit suicide and many farmers, because of that, they leave farming uh, altogether, what will happen to the reliability of their supply chains, cotton supply chains uh, for their fashion? Uh, and then second was, imagine a scenario where, uh, you know, your thousands of farmers, your end suppliers have committed suicide, but then the management of a big fashion brand uh, goes away with a bonus, annual bonus of tens, tens of millions of dollars, right? And that is uh, not good for the reputation of that brand too. Right. So they wanted to work with, work with us on figuring out uh, an insurance solution. And then I realized that today is the executives of, of these fashion brands. Tomorrow, uh, it will be every company on this planet Earth will have to think about the reliability of the supply chains and operations because of climate change. So I had this, so I saw this, uh, I had this idea in mind, but then because of my upbringing, I'm back in the small town of India. Uh, I, you know, I, I talked to you about uh, with the water story with my mother mm -hmm. and it just felt like an inner calling. Like, hey, this is something I want to do. And, and uh, fortunately at, at Stanford, uh, I knew that, the, that it's a big problem. And the question was, do we have the technology to solve this problem, right? And that's where I met my co-founder, Max. I was a climate nerd and he was an AI nerd. And that's how climate.ai got started. We, both of us were dormage at Stanford. And uh, yeah, your, your two passions have both made it into the name of the company, which is very cool. And I think what your story is, is really demonstrating, and this is something that I'm a big believer in, is um, the power of the individual. We've been talking about governments, we've been talking about corporations, and, and there's so much more to discuss uh, in general when it comes to, you know, individual versus corporate but I, or, or government. I th but I think ultimately what I'm, what I'm hearing, the way I'm choosing to interpret this information is that the individual really does have a lot of power because you as an individual, you and Max, your co-founder, two individuals c came together had an, with an idea and and are making this this amazing technological solution, which can then influence how governments and corporations choose to run their operations. Uh, and so, I, I suppose the question comes down to you know what what can today's youth? I mean, people who are in high school, in university, even even if you're out of university. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I've been out of out of university for. Over ten years, I think I've sort of yeah. lost track, and um, you know, I'm I'm I also want to participate and and take action. Um, but the question sometimes comes up in my mind or in people's minds. I know I'm just one person. What difference can I make? Uh, it's just a drop in the ocean, so to speak. So, I mean, what what would you say to that mentality of it's not really worth the individual is not actually it's not about the individual corporations and governments need to, need to change so don't as an individual i have no power 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You, you basically uh, uh, hit the nail there, right? I believe individuals have a lot more power than even corporations and corporations and governments, and not not just in the traditional way you think about it, like hey, who we who we elect uh, in the Congress or uh, or you know what brands we buy. Of course, first of all, I'm a big fan of the entire Greta movement. I think we need a similar Greta movement for water. Hmm. for that matter the way we've seen that in climate we need that for water too right because you know i mean uh, otherwise if you come to think of it united nations was set up 70 80 years ago for tackling problems like that like the way we are setting but then uh what greta has been able to achieve in terms of driving change both at the corporate level the government level as well as the community level uh, over the last three or four years is a lot more than probably like some of those, some of those UN initiatives have been able to achieve. Mm -hmm. And don't, don't get me wrong. UN has been a very influential body has been a very impactful body. A lot of the initiatives have done a lot of uh, created a lot of impact for many problems in health and education and so on and so forth. But I'm talking about climate change. So individuals have a lot more power than you realize. And to your point that why we think, you know, uh, and, and why we think that our efforts would be just a drop in the ocean. Right, I call it like a, a drop in the you know drop in the bucket or drop in the ocean challenge, right? Hashtag drop in drop in the ocean challenge. I'll give you an example. Let's take hamburgers. Every year, there are five billion hamburgers being consumed in the U.S. Five billion. That right? number. Yeah, and let's let's take a let's do some basic maths on top to produce one hamburger. The water footprint to produce that one hamburger is close to 2,400 liters. That's like you not showering for eight days, right? That's that's how much, what is the water footprint of, uh, of your one hamburger? Hmm. So that's close to uh, 12 trillion liters of annual water consumption just for consuming hamburgers in the US, Wow! right? And just to put things in context, uh, the annual water consumption of Belgium is eight trillion dollars, eight trillion uh, liters, and that's twelve. Like so, hamburger as a country is more than Belgium in terms of water consumption. Now, you might say, hey, we we don't want to take extreme steps and say like, hey, you know what, stop eating beef or stop eating hamburger. No, huh? it's fine. Just think about like, hey, what if you were to reduce your hamburger consumption uh, from thrice a week to twice a week? Mm -hmm. Right. And do that. Post about it on TikTok uh, or Insta or whatnot. And let hashtag drop in the bucket challenge or drop in the ocean challenge. And you see, like, even if we, if we, even if we are able to achieve a billion hamburger reduction a year, that's almost close to half of uh, uh, half of the water consumption of Belgium. And that savings matter quite a bit. Right. So we, we as individuals always underestimate the power of compounding effect. And we always underestimate the power of long-term changes. We overestimate the power of short-term changes uh, as well as the power of like institutions. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's, 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 that's one. And of course, the other is, you know, uh, so this is, you, you spend, or we spend uh, 10 to 12 hours or 13 hours of our day or 15 hours of our day working, right? What if you were to make that your mission to work on these problems? either contribute to a company solving these problems 
or do something yourself. Like you can turn your job into a climate job. And I can talk about why and how you can do that. So there's so much more that we as individuals can do all the way from like looking at our own consumption habits uh, to, to uh, asking tough questions from the brands. Uh, beware, we eat, we consume, we, we travel with and so on and so forth. And third is to uh, how we work and where we work. Mm-hmm. I think both of those examples are really good. And I think the first example in terms of, you know, eating one hamburger fewer a week, probably also good for your health, I would imagine. But putting that aside, um, that that's something that you can, that, that's a very easy thing that shouldn't really change the way doesn't really change kind of your lifestyle on a, on a big basis. But I think what I'm hearing, especially with the second point of, you know, your job, whether it's a career or even if, if you're at, if you're at school or at work, the idea of initiative, you know, so maybe at your work, they're only recycling. You can, you can be the sustainability champion for lack of a better word and take action. You know, if you want to see something else at your company, whatever that may be, maybe you want to have a compost bin, just ask. Most of the time, um, someone in HR or, or your boss, they just don't realize. It's not that they don't care. They've, they're have they running a, a company. They've got a lot on their, their mind. Just take initiative. Just say, hey, is it all right if we pay $10 or whatever to get a compost bin in here? And I will be the one every week to take it to a place where they take compost. And now all of a sudden, all of that food waste that used to go into the into the trash you're now diverting it from landfill and it's getting composted and land. I mean, that's a huge impact as well. Food waste is, there's a lot associated with uh, emission reduction. If you can reduce food waste and what goes into landfill. So I think what I'm hearing is initiative as well. Don't be scared to make these. And that's the power of one person. And you never know, right? I mean, as you talked about Daniel, one of those initiatives might end up becoming a climate unicorn. Now, let's Absolutely. take an example of Google, right? Google had Google implemented this policy in early 2000s that you can spend 10% to 15% of your time working on your own initiatives mm-hmm. uh, as side projects. And uh, one of these side projects, projects ended up becoming Gmail, right? Now imagine the power of those side projects. If you have every individual in their company, as you talked about, Daniel, we... We identify, hey, I'm, I have identified a side project of, of uh, recycling. I have identified a side project of like, hey, asking tough questions in engineer from my cloud service providers, and cloud vendors on like, hey, what is your emissions of, uh, on, on, the, uh, on the cloud front? Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you sourcing electricity for your data centers? Is it renewable or not, right? Um, or, or you can take uh, uh, an initiative on the product side, like, hey, there's this climate crisis happening globally and uh, there are some countries impacting a lot more than the others. And uh, what if you were to build, uh, you know, and one of the big problems right now in climate finance, uh, finance is how do you efficiently transfer funds from developed countries to developing countries and to, to, to uh, in a way that it reaches the beneficiaries, right? Can you develop an app uh, can do that, right? And you will never know. It's 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 no longer a, a charity imperative we are seeing. Climate tech has become the if one of the hottest, if not the hottest field right now in the Silicon Valley. So from those side projects to your to your point, those initiatives might end up uh, pushing you to becoming a climate entrepreneur. 
Absolutely. And that is the power of the individual. And I think it's important to remember that we as individuals uh, have, as you you said it yourself, Amancha, we have more power in many ways than the corporations themselves, because also corporations are run by individuals. It all boils down to the individual at the end of the day. And and I think it's important to remember that when we go out into the world and, and do the things that we do on a daily basis, whether it's eating one fewer hamburger a day or, you know, buying from a buying used clothes instead of new clothes from a from a fast um fast fashion brand whatever the case is so i think that's a really inspiring message and and it's important to remember and it reminds me as well about you know why something like a podcast is important as well because i get to hear these stories and hopefully maybe someone will will hear your story Himanshu, and and also want to take action from it um and so if someone wants to learn more about the work you're doing with climate ai or or if there's a corporation or even a government who is interested in in being ready for the future when it comes to climate change, where's the best place for people to go and, and learn more about about uh, climate AI and the work you do? You know, I can I can uh, tell your audience that the normal answer of like, hey, go to our website and LinkedIn and yada yada yada. I would just say that go to my LinkedIn page or go to my you know we have there are fifty five of us in the company. Go to anyone's LinkedIn page and just drop us a message. Even if you, you know, you don't want to work at Climate AI, you don't want to buy from Climate AI, I just want to talk about, hey, I want to build a career in climate. Can I talk to you about that? You'll see like all my very passionate colleagues will respond to you and will jump on the call with you. Right? And that's what we take great pride in doing. Like, hey, can we, how do, how do we, how do we get more and more people to work in the field of climate change? Uh, right? Because 55 of us cannot do that 5500 us 5500 of us alone also cannot do that mm-hmm. right so so that's one two is just uh we uh we are doing a lot of work and you see a lot more announcements on of our work with the governments with the corporations uh as well as uh very soon with communities too um on 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 water on food and very soon uh, and as i said about uh, and then uh, on uh, building general resilience. So we do did a lot of work during Hurricane Ian uh, mm-hmm. with uh, many building material manufacturers in the US uh, and help them to not only like, of course, uh, you know, put their inventory in the right place, but also help a lot of uh, people in those effect, impacted by Hurricane Ian rebuild faster. So if you get, you know, we, we don't want a scenario where you, you don't, ha- you go to Home Depot and Lowy's and you don't find materials to rebuild their homes fast enough. Uh, after the hurricane, right? So you, you'll see, you'll hear a lot about us, but most importantly, just drop us a message. Well, it's a very generous offer. And um, I hope I hope people take advantage because it's a, it's a great opportunity to speak with people who are already doing the work that you are passionate about. And just to hear from them, you know, why they love their work and and why they do what they do. So uh, I want you to thank you so much for your time and, and for all the work that you're doing. I think it's, it's both fascinating and the implications of the you know, the information that you're providing to corporations and governments are are huge. And hopefully uh, they will make things easier for all of us. And um, it opens the eyes well, for, the, for the people who are involved. Well, thanks, Daniel, for having me. I would just uh, end this by saying that, look, we are all, and I'm living this dream, and we're all living this dream. By we are all, I mean, all my colleagues at Climate AI, we're all living this dream so that the others don't have to live this nightmare. Mm. It's well said. 
Very well said. Well, thank you again, Himanshu, and uh, appreciate your time. Thanks, Daniel, uh, and thanks for having me.